0: Beth Bennett, this is How on Earth, the News Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. Coming up, an interview with Robin Chutkin, gastroenterologist and author, on the role of the gut microbiome in protecting us against viruses. But first, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
1: When people have knee pain from osteoarthritis, a doctor often prescribes a steroid shot to inject directly into the knee. Here's how the Mayo Clinic recently described that common protocol. Quote, a corticosteroid shot helps relieve joint pain by decreasing inflammation in and around a joint, Unquote. The Mayo Clinic article goes on to give a common warning that repeated steroid injections can damage cartilage within a joint. The Mayo Clinic then explains a common medical precaution quote, these injections usually are not given more often than once every six weeks. It also typically is recommended that people receive corticosteroid injections no more than three or four times a year, unquote. New research just made public this morning by the Radiological Society of America may lead to bigger warnings about even one single steroid shot. In the new study, researchers used three different ways to handle knee pain. In group one, People with knee pain got no injection. In Group 2, participants received a single shot of corticosteroid directly into the knee. In Group 3, knee pain sufferers received a shot of hyaluronic acid. Unlike a steroid, hyaluronic acid is a natural substance within the knee joint. Hyaluronic acid is a big part of synovial fluid. Synovial fluid is a natural lubricant in all our joints. So how did it all turn out? well, whether someone got a single shot of hyaluronic acid or a steroid, most people reported that the shot helped knee pain become less painful fairly fast. So in the short term, either kind of shot helped knees feel a little better. The long-term outcome was a different story. Before the injections, the researchers had done MRI scans of each patient's knee. Two years after that single injection, they did MRIs again. The new MRIs revealed that people who had received a single steroid shot two years earlier were more likely to have significant degradation of their knee joint. That means their knee damage had gotten worse. How about the people who got no shot at all, or people who got an injection of the naturally occurring substance within a knee, that stuff called hyaluronic acid? The researchers report that among these groups, the quality of the knee joint had not degraded in a significant way. UC San Francisco researcher Upadhyay Bardwaj even said this, hyaluronic acid may slow down the progression of knee osteoarthritis and alleviate long-term effects while offering symptomatic relief, Unquote. This is a brand new study. We'll try to reach the researchers to get more details about it for a future show. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender.
0: antiviral gut, Dr. Robin Chutkin, describes research elucidating the protective role of the microbiome. Many studies have confirmed the link between the health of our microbiome, that is, the trillions of bacteria that live in our digestive tract, and our likelihood of getting devastating viral illnesses like COVID-19. Low fiber diets, limited exposure to nature, and overzealous use of antibiotics can disrupt the microbiome. In her recent book, Chutkin lays out a plan for anyone trying to avoid or recover from a viral illness to rehab their gut microbes and restore their health. Welcome to the show, Robin. I'm speaking with Robin Chutkin, Dr. Robin Chutkin, gastroenterologist today, about her really interesting new book called The Antiviral Gut. And we all know, all right, I'm assuming we all know about the microbiome. It's been in the news a lot in the last 10 years or so. But... Dr. Chutkin is taking a really unusual approach to the microbiome as a protective device in our bodies that can specifically protect us from viruses. So Robin, I know I said we all know about the microbiome, but in case there's people that don't know that much about it, do you want to just give a brief overview as to what this consists of?
2: I would love to, Beth. And thank you so much for hosting me. So let's start with a little definition. The microbiome refers to all the organisms, not just bacteria, but viruses, parasites, protozoa, little one cell organisms, fungal organisms that live in and on our body. And most of them live in our digestive tract. So how many microbes are we talking about? trillions. In fact, there are more than a billion bacteria in just one drop of fluid in your colon alone. So even though they're invisible, if we scrape them all up, this would weigh about three or four pounds. So we're talking about lots of organisms.
0: Lots of organisms and lots of genes. The genetic diversity in the microbiome is staggering. When you think that humans maybe have 25,000 max genes There's maybe a couple hundred thousand bacterial genes. So they can do all kinds of cool stuff for us.
2: Absolutely. We are really we are more microbe than human when you think about it. Like you think about who's doing all the work, who's operating the machinery, who's digesting the food and synthesizing the vitamins and detoxifying compounds. It's our gut bacteria.
0: Right. And we're not going to talk about the interaction of the gut with the brain today, but sometimes I even wonder who's running the show, my gut or me.
2: But in definitely your gut. Yeah, exactly.
0: But in terms of protecting us from viruses, what are all these bacteria doing? And it makes sense that they would want to protect us, right? Because we're their, our gut is their turf. They don't want anybody else taking it over.
2: Yeah, we're their host. So when we die, they die. You know, <laughs> So they definitely are invested in our well-being. But I think one of the most important things for people to understand is that the majority of our immune system, somewhere around 70 to 80% of our immune system is physically located in our gut. So we have this gut lining, this razor thin lining, just one cell thick. And on one side of that, we have these trillions of microbes. We have food particles that are being digested. We have toxins we've swallowed. We have viruses have gotten in through our mouth. And on the other side, on the inside of the gut lining, we have all these immune cells. And there is constant interaction between the microbes and the immune processes. It is really a hand and glove interaction. And so our gut bacteria are really guiding our immune cells. It's like air traffic control. They're literally keeping surveillance in the gut and saying, okay, here's a really bad actor. You know, SARS-CoV-2 is here. I want you to get really active. I want you to mount an immune response. This is what needs to happen. Or this virus is really mild or this bacteria, you can just ignore this. This isn't a big deal. So our gut bacteria are constantly training and informing our immune cells and telling them what to do.
0: And I want to reiterate for the listeners who might be a little staggered by this idea that most of the immune system is in the gut. I want to reiterate what you just said. It makes perfect sense. The the gut bacteria are living there. They're intimately familiar with conditions in the gut. In fact, they shape those conditions to be able to use the food and other stuff that we give them um, to their best advantage. So they want to make sure that immune system is dialed in and protecting both the host, that is you and me, as well as the resident bacteria.
2: That's absolutely correct.
0: So one thing that we have to touch on because this was my undergraduate honors thesis was mucus. I love mucus. I just think it's amazing stuff. It's all throughout the body. So talk about the role of mucus in the gut and how the bacteria interact with that.
2: Beth, you literally have made my week because (laughs) nobody wants to talk about mucus except you and I. Mucus is this sticky, Matrix. It's like a cross between jello and glue. And even though when people think about mucus, they think about the respiratory tract, most of the mucus in our body is made in our gut, about one and a half liters a day. And it lines all the surfaces that are in contact with the outside environment. So, like our nose and our mouth and our reproductive system, our our vagina, our gut, all of these organs that are in constant interaction with the outside world, they're open to the outside world. Are lined by mucus. So, mucus plays a role as a lubricant to help, you know, as those products of digestion move through the GI tract to make sure they move through in this nice, smooth way, kind of like you put lotion on your skin. But mucus is so much more than a lubricant. Mucus actually traps pathogens like viruses, as well as irritants like pollen. But we're talking about viruses today. So, mucus traps viruses in its sticky matrix. And then enzymes in mucus degrade the virus to render it inactive. And then the cilia, the little finger-like projections in our lungs, move it up so we cough it out or we swallow it. And if we swallow it and we have stomach acid, if we've been good and not blocked our stomach acid, then the stomach acid further denatures the viral protein. So, I mean, you couldn't design a system like this if you tried. It is so well designed. It must have evolved, you know, because everything works together. So here's a problem. Mucus is there to protect us. But what happens when we get a cold, let's say we get a viral infection, our mucus production increases because our body's trying to trap the pathogen and move it out. But what do we do? We go and take a cough syrup or an antihistamine, we do something to actually slow down mucus production and dry us out. And that makes us more vulnerable. Now, of course, it's it's challenging, right? Because sometimes you have a lot of mucus production, you have a post-nasal drip, you can't get to sleep, et cetera. But again, it's important to keep in mind that these things are designed to help us and maybe to be a little more judicious with how we're using these medications that can sabotage some of our host defenses.
0: That's something I really enjoyed about your book that I do wanna mention, that whenever you can, you uh, suggest and support more naturalistic remedies, while at the same time advocating for the best possible treatment, which sometimes is allopathic or Western medicine. And also, I think this is a really interesting thing for readers, that you include a lot of patient stories. So there's that personal touch, and people can relate to these stories, actual individuals that come to you and say, hey, I have this problem or I have that problem, and you can try to suss out what sort of dietary or lifestyle modifications might help with that.
2: It's one of the great privileges of being a physician. And I like to say that most of the useful stuff I know I learned from patients because, you know, I had a fantastic medical education at Columbia, but that was 31 years ago. And I've been able to really build on that with the patients, and particularly with my patients who have complex autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, see what works, see what doesn't, and really have my medical practices like a living laboratory. So I'm very grateful to all my patients over the years who've put their trust in me. And, you know, we've managed to be on the journey together and generally to get to a good place, to get to a good destination.
0: And it seems like more and more people are manifesting with these kinds of gut related problems, irritable bowel, Crohn's, various allergies. So let's talk about diet because that's such an important um, contributor, both to our health in general, but also to the health of our microbiome.
2: It absolutely is. And you mentioned Crohn's, which is a disease that is very near and dear to me because many of my patients have it. We know from a scientific article about a year and a half ago that emulsifiers in food can be linked to Crohn's disease. They can actually damage a gut lining, damage a gut bacteria. So it's not just that these processed foods are not nutritive, that they are, you know, don't have lots of nutrients and so on. It's also that they contain emulsifiers, fillers, synthetic compounds that can damage our gut. I mean, if you take some of these processed foods and you read the ingredients, that sounds like a science experiment. And if I took most parents and I took them into a lab and I showed them a bunch of beakers with this stuff And I said, okay, have your kid open up. I'm going to pour it down. I mean, they would run out of the lab shrieking, but yet, you know, we're eating this stuff and so much of it is how it's marketed. It is heavily marketed, not just in terms of the packaging, but in terms of the taste. A lot of these synthetic compounds are in it to give it a certain mouthfeel and flavor that's appealing. And a little bit of this stuff is okay. But the problem is for a lot of people, these processed foods, ultra processed foods, foods that are from a highly pesticide food chain, represent the majority of what they're eating. So it's really, you know, Beth, it's really these three things. It's the stomach acid and what an important role it plays. And the fact that a lot of people are on drugs to block stomach acid, it's the gut lining and the important role it plays in keeping us safe from the environment and all the things that we do, alcohol, stress, highly refined foods, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, all of those things that can damage a gut lining. And then of course, the gut bacteria with again, a lot of those same factors, not enough fiber, too many medications like antibiotics, acid blockers, steroids, and you know, not enough exposure to soil microbes out in nature either. That's a really important one. I know you get lots of that in Boulder, but there are lots of people who live in urban areas who are not getting exposure to soil microbes.
0: Right. Not only are they not getting exposed to that, but like you just said, they're getting exposed to all kinds of unpleasant ingredients in their food. And these are the kinds of things that we know from animal experiments are not good for the gut microbiome. But we're doing this huge uncontrolled experiment on the American public in terms of the foods that people are eating. And it seems, you know, just from sort of cursory examination that people are eating worse and worse. I mean, they're their lifestyles are more stressed. And of course, that interacts with the kind of food they eat to damage both the physical and the m- microbial environment in the gut. So
2: Absolutely. I have to say, I,
0: I love the recipes that, that you include some very gut friendly recipes. So let's talk about the role of fiber, because that's something that's near and dear to my heart in terms of the gut bacteria.
2: Yeah, we know that fiber is the most important food for feeding gut bacteria. We have data from studies from decades ago showing that even at an early age, children eating a high fiber diet have healthier microbiomes. So one of my favorite studies is from Dr. Paolo Leonetti, who's an Italian pediatric gastroenterologist in Florence. And he did a study that was published, gosh, this must be 15 years ago looking at a cohort of kids from Florence, Italy, and a similar cohort from Bullpon, Burkina Faso in Africa. And he found that the babies who were born vaginally and breastfed were virtually identical at birth. But after a couple of years, once the babies graduated to eating table food and the local diet, everything changed. So what were the kids in Florence, Italy eating? They were eating, Beth, a diet that's pretty identical to the standard American diet. Lots of fat, lots of animal protein, lots of sugar and low fiber. What were the kids in bolpon Burkina Faso eating? They were eating a high fiber diet. They, The Mossi tribe in bolpon were eating much like their Neolithic ancestors did. They were farming, they were eating lots of root vegetables and they were eating the occasional termite during the rainy season or an occasional free range chicken. But it was a high fiber diet that was grown in microbially rich soil. And what they found was that the kids from Burkina Faso had a much healthier microbiome, more diversity. They had species associated with leanness and health. The kids in Florence eating, you know, lots of ossobuco and gelato and pizza (laughs) had microbes that were associated with obesity and diarrheal disease and inflammation. But the really amazing thing about the study, Beth, is that neither group of children were sick we were talking about young kids, but we were seeing the foundations for disease laid down based on the diet. And people looked at that study and they said, okay, that's interesting, but maybe it was the environmental differences, right? Because the folks in Bullpond, Burkina Faso are living primarily in rondavels, or living in close proximity to their animals, sometimes in the huts with them. And they're out there in the fields, Folks in in Florence from this study were mostly living in high-rises in urban areas, so maybe it was an environmental difference. So then comes another study that was done a little bit after that was published in the journal Nature, where researchers in Boston took nine volunteers, and they put them on a low-fiber, high-protein, basically an Atkins-type diet, lots of pork rinds and prosciutto. And then they took those same volunteers- They didn't move them to a different area. They rested them for about five days. And then they put them on a primarily plant-based diet: jasmine, rice, lentils, mango, and fruit for snack instead of pork rinds. And the difference was dramatic. Within about 30 hours of food hitting the gut, we start to see dramatic changes in the microbiome. And not just in the different, in the in the amounts of different species, but also in genes that were turned on and off. We saw that the dietary changes also led to changes in gene activation. So for me, Beth, it's such an optimistic message, right? Like in 30 hours, you can start to change your gut microbiome. Right. It is
0: very optimistic. And there's more and more data coming in all the time. Um, For instance, last year I interviewed for this show Herman Panzer, who studies the Hadza tribe in Mm -hmm. Kenya. And um, he he didn't personally show, but his colleagues have shown that between wet and dry season, their gut microbiomes flip-flop. As you said, wet season, way more fiber containing vegetable material. And then in dry season, they go to more animal and also a lot more honey. I mean, they eat a staggering amount of honey. It's mind boggling, like 30% of their calories some days come from honey. And during that dry season their gut microbiome comes to resemble that of Americans eating a crappy diet much more. But then they go back and they're overall extremely healthy. So it is possible to change the microbiome in response to what you eat. And, you know, if you have a few slip ups, it's not going to kill you.
2: Totally, it's much more about what you're missing than what you're eating. So most Americans are missing greens and beans, less than 7% of the population are eating green leafy vegetables and legumes on a daily basis. And so, you know, it's less about never eating a piece of meat and more about making sure that you're getting that fiber in. And we know that magic number from the American Gut Project data is 30 or more different plant foods per week is correlated with a much healthier, more diverse, more robust microbiome. And so, you know, you get credit for fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, um, whole grains, spices, herbs, you get credit for all of it.
0: Right. And I would encourage people to take a look at your book. And your recipes because they're really easy and i've made a few of them now and they are delicious and oh. another benefit is that when you're eating lower on the food chain and especially if you're cooking your lentils and beans from scratch they're cheap and that's a big deal these days when food prices have gone up so much
2: that's such a good point they're cheap they're better for you they taste better you know, I we do a lot of, of lentils from scratch. And I tell you, I tasted some canned lentils the other day and I, I just had to spit oh, them out. Yeah. And they're more expensive. Of course, yeah. it's more time consuming to cook them, but we cook huge pots and I freeze them. So we do a lot of batch cooking. Yeah,
0: yeah, it it makes perfect sense. And speaking of expensive, um, one study that I would like to highlight for our listeners, and you've probably come across similar studies, was done by a group at the Weizmann Institute in Israel where they do a lot of microbiome work. And they've tried probiotics, which we all know are pretty expensive. I mean, you can go to different natural food stores and spend a lot of money on a small bottle, like a one-dose shot of a probiotic. And this group, this research group in Israel, discovered that there is very little, if any, replacement from the commercially available brands.
2: That's absolutely true. You know, I think, Beth, a good analogy would be like vitamins you know there's very little data that taking a vitamin does anything now people who take vitamins tend to have healthier habits so um people who take vitamins are often concerned about their health they're eating healthier diet they have healthier habits but the vitamin itself is not what's making them healthy and it's the same thing with the probiotics so we know the things that lead to a healthy microbiome it's judicious use of medication trying to avoid the things that are detrimental to the gut bacteria and that would include things like artificial sweeteners we know that artificial sweeteners are very detrimental to the microbiome so it's eating a more natural on-processed diet it's being careful about medication it's exposure to soil microbes it's getting sleep it's controlling stress it's all of these things it's not something you go and buy off a shelf
0: exactly and you know you check all the boxes in your book robin in a very readable and approachable format so I'm going to link to the book website in our show notes, and um, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you so much for talking. I appreciate your coming on the show today.
2: Beth, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me. That was Dr. Robin Chutkin talking to me about
0: her newest book on the gut called The Antiviral Gut. She gives a succinct description of the myriad microbes living cooperatively within all of us some of the ways our modern lifestyle promotes an unhealthy gut ecosystem, and how to encourage one that supports health. You can find a link to her book in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by yours truly and engineered by Shannon Young. Additional contributions from Shelly Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Weird L. Yankovich. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to websites mentioned in the show. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.